the utmost. Jesus saved. Praise the name of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Give a big amen once again to this great choir. Amen. And to Bishop John. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. First of all, giving glory to God for all that he has done. And on yesterday, we had a great and productive business meeting. Praise the Lord. We've got a lot of things on our schedule, but we know that the Lord is able. And I'm looking for great things to happen on next year. Some great needed improvements and progress in the name of Jesus. Because we don't want to do this on our own, do we? We want Jesus to go before us. Amen. Amen. And also, I want to put some emphasis on a couple of areas that I believe is crucial to the growth of every believer. And first, that is Sunday school. And second, Bible study. From this pulpit, I can give you so much information. But a lot of times you need some background information that I'm not able to do in this short time. But when you go to Sunday school and to Bible study, those gaps get filled in. And you can't have interaction with me when I'm standing here from the pulpit preaching. But you can in Bible study and in Sunday school. You can ask your questions right there. And we can go back and forth. And so I encourage you all to come to Sunday school and Bible study because you will not regret it. The Lord has been doing great things in both Sunday school and Bible study, opening up the word to us in great ways. So as your pastor, I am encouraging you all to find your way into one of the two of those, if not both. I do understand sometimes work gets in the way of things, but when you can, Please be there because you will get a blessing and also you'll be a blessing to us. Because remember, we are together in our spiritual gifts. You being there with us also blesses us as well as we bless you. Amen. 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 Praise the Lord. Well, without further ado, amen, uh, let us go to the book or the epistle, the first epistle to the Corinthians chapter 13. The first epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Corinthians, chapter 13. Surrender 
surrender all we've got to surrender our future our goals, our wishes our desires to the Lord because when the Lord truly becomes the captain of our ship we are going to see great things the Lord is going to do in our life individually and as a church amen amen The first epistle to the Corinthians by the Apostle Paul, chapter 13, starting at verse 6, you'll find these words. The word says, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things hopes all things, endures all things. In the context of those two verses, the writer is talking about love. So today, once again, I want to talk with you a few moments from the thought, what does love have to do with it, part four? Amen. Thank you for standing for the reading of God's word. What does love have to do with it? Part four. In the prior Sunday mornings, we have found that this passage of scripture found in the 13th chapter of Corinthians is packed with truth. It's packed with instruction about the whole concept of love. We've been breaking it off in bite-sized chunks, verse by verse, and unpacking the scriptures so that we can see what that God wishes for us to do. And so today we want to continue in unpacking this text and seeing what God has to say about being those who love one another and those who love those without. 
we find that in the context of this passage that the writer has allowed us to see that love is not about how well you can sing or how well you can preach or how well you can prophesy or how well you can usher, how well you can oversee the properties, how well you can do the finances. But he says to us, I have a more excellent way. And that is the way of true love. And we have seen in the previous Sundays that love is an action word. Love is not just an ooey-gooey feeling that we have for a man and a woman. That is a form of love, but that is not the kind of love that draws people to Christ. That's not the kind of love that causes people to come inside of a building to be part of a congregation of other believers in Christ. Not that kind of love. We got a kind of love that says that, you know, I love my brother and I love my sister and I will do for them because they are my blood. That's a form of love, but it's not the kind of love that draws folks to Christ. There is a more excellent way. There is a love that supersedes that kind of love. That kind of love has in the Greek the word agape love. And that love supersedes brotherly love, supersedes romantic love, supersedes uh, 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 familiarity love, but it goes to a love that transcends to even the stranger. It's the love that sees beyond faults and sees needs. And love is an action word. You can tell me you love me every day of the week. But if you don't put something behind it, it has no meaning at all. So we look at this text, and I contend to you that the love that we show for one another is also an evangelism issue. The church likes to throw that term around a lot. It's a churchy word, evangelize. But I've noticed that even the world has now began to adopt that in their corporate settings. Evangelizing products, Microsoft evangelists, United Health evangelists for healthcare, evangelists for Obamacare, evangelists for all these many things. But that word comes from the church. And how easy is it for us to discard our beautiful language and the world pick it up and use it. And in their corporation, you find all of these people excited about their products. You find not just one, but many people that are all excited. And because of their excitement and energy about this product, it makes you want to get a piece of it yourself. You say, if all these people are so excited about it, let me see what they got. Apple is great evangelists for their products. You go to the Apple store and all of their employees are excited about telling you about their products. Come look at the new iPad Air. Come look at the iPad Mini. Come look at the iMac. Come look at the new MacBook 
MacBook Pro with retina display. I mean, they're excited about what they do. They evangelize because they are together in their excitement. They ought to be taking cues from us, but unfortunately, nowadays, we're taking cues from them. When are we going to get excited? And everybody within the church is excited about what's going on at church, what's going on in the Word, what's going on in the other auxiliaries, and that we're telling them about the details of what we're doing and saying, come see it. We've got this great product called salvation. We've got this great thing that you need to be a part of. You need to experience. And that not just one not just the pastor, but the whole congregation is excited about it. Everybody's happy about this newfound salvation and wanting the world to know that there is a reality in serving a true and living God. We're out there telling them that I know you're going through right now. I know you got trouble in your life. I know it seems like you run out, but there is Jesus. One Thursday evening at a hay baler, I found him. When I couldn't do anything else, I found Jesus. But they don't just need to see one person saying that. They need to see the congregation as a whole. That's what makes corporation evangelists so powerful. Because they have so many people excited about the product. And they can sell the product at great margins. Because they're excited and they're at one accord about it. We got the pearl of great price. That is more valuable than any iPad, any iMac, any MacBook Pro. But we treat it as if it's a second-rate, cutthroat piece of merchandise. We go out into our communities and we talk about one another. We go out there and say things and talk about your church. There's no enthusiasm. You just kind of, yeah, I got to go to church. That's not evangelism. But when you got true love for one another, there's an excitement that that I've got to go to church because I'm going to get to see my brother and my sister today. I'm going to get to hug them and say, how you doing today? Is everything all right? And I can't wait to get back. And when the world sees that kind of excitement from you, they'll come trying to see it too. What's love? got to do with it. So as we begin to open up this text, we realize that these things that we are supposed to be practicing week after week that we're learning about love is an evangelism issue. They will know that we are Jesus' disciples by the love that we show one another. We got to get excited about this. We got to stop worrying about how we feel about stuff and how I'm hurting and how that, and get focused on Jesus. Because Jesus is the mind regulator. See, Jesus is the one that can get you off of what so-and-so said or what so-and-so did. Because when we come into this house about Jesus and Jesus alone, we all ought to be excited. We all ought to be excited knowing that we was on our way to a burning hell. But he found us where we are, turned us around, cleaned us up, and put us on solid ground. Am I right about it? Can I get an amen in the house? Hallelujah. 
we ought to get excited. Because I know I'm happy about it. I know I was doing everything but being a child of God. And on my road to hell, while I was trying to be a better thief, God found me just where I need to be. And he has blessed me so many ways that I cannot explain it all. I get excited about it. And everyone in this house who knows the name Jesus ought to be excited the same way. Because he turned us around and he put our feet on solid ground. No longer is the things we walk on sinking sand. But we're trusting holy in Jesus' name. Oh, that's good news, saints of God. I'm feeling good in the house because I know that Jesus lives. Hallelujah. So looking at our text, praise the Lord. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. There is a lot of meaning behind that phrase that Paul expounds here in verse 6. First of all, there is a phenomenon that I have experienced in the church where I have seen church members, quote unquote, who get happy about seeing. That they're going along until they got a juicy piece of information about somebody laying down with somebody else, somebody lying on somebody else, then they get excited. I know that sounds crazy here at New Zion, but I know I've seen it for myself. And on past Sundays, if you remember, I told you about some people or some church members that while everything is running good, they almost seem like they're at the point of death. But when some mess starts, when some folks start arguing with one another, having disagreements and all kinds of strife, then they get happy. They start to blossom and they start to glow. As if, as if somehow now they found the great thing. But they rejoice in iniquity. You know what I call that? No love. How can you love somebody and like the fact that they're in sin? Like the fact that they're walking in something that God is displeased with? How can that be love? How can that be the kind of love that God has for the more excellent way? When you're happy to hear about other folks in mess, strive, you, you, you're looking for the opportunity to spread some gossip about some bad news? I, I don't want to be the one to have to spread that. And you know, sometimes I find myself there. I don't know why, except for the sin condition that's in me. So judgment first starts at the household of God. And I'm saying judgment first starts here at the pulpit. I don't know what it is why we can't take the negative and just put it down. Look at our world. Our world revolves around negative. The news media, they're always throwing negative because negative what? Sales. And it doesn't just sell to the unbeliever, but the believer as well. And that's why the Lord said we must die daily. 
Because that old sinful flesh keeps rising up and rejoicing in iniquity. Focusing on negativity. Finding ourselves driving miles just to get somewhere to call somebody to tell them about what went wrong. But then when something goes right, by the time you reach there, you don't even pick up the phone. Rejoicing in iniquity. But the Lord has an antidote for that. He calls it being filled with the Spirit. See, we got to start off our days being filled with the Spirit, asking the Lord to come in and take control of our lives. More of Him and less of me. So that we don't rejoice in what? Iniquity. This whole idea behind rejoicing in iniquity has another connotation, if you will. It has another aspect that's just as diabolical. And rejoicing in iniquity can also be explained as reveling when somebody else is groveling. Now think about this for a moment. It's the idea that my brother or my sister has done something wrong to me and I'm not going to forgive them. I'm going to be stiff-necked toward them and I'm going to watch them until they suffer. Then when the person suffers or gets convicted by the Holy Spirit to ask for forgiveness, they come to you and ask you to forgive them and you refuse it. But the person has been made contrite in spirit and they're down about what they did to you. And their hearts are broken and they need to be mended. They need to be forgiven. But because you have decided that I want to see you grovel, you don't forgive them. Day in and day out, they see you not talk with them or not walk with them or when they're in your presence, you leave theirs. All because you want to see them suffer. Rejoicing in iniquity from the perspective of reveling when you see your brother or sister groveling. And on your face may not be a smile, but in your heart, you're jumping for joy because you're seeing them hurt like they hurt me. And I don't just want them to hurt that bad, I want them to hurt even more until I say that you hurt enough. Rejoicing in iniquity. But if we look over our lives at some point in time, there's a very good chance that we've done that too. Because we felt so much pain that when we saw them in pain and the opportunity to get them back because we had something that they can't get for themselves. And that's forgiveness. Nobody can make you forgive them. And you know that. So you refuse it, it's something that no matter how much they pay or how much they say, it can only be getting 
getting given to them if you give it freely. But you know that you've got them in a power grip now. So you squeeze them and allow them to feel the pain of, why don't you just forgive me? I, you, know, I did, you know, I've come to the point, I know I was wrong. Why, why can't we just get along? Why, why can't we talk like we used to? Why can't we walk like we used to? Why can't we get, go out and eat together like we used to? Because you're reveling in their groveling. But you know what that's not? It's not love. Because love is ready to forgive. Love does not revel in their groveling. Love does not rejoice in other people's sin. So once again, love is an action word. Love forgives. Love is ready at a moment's notice to say, I forgive you. Let's go out to eat. I forgive you. Come over to the house and let's watch TV together. Let's go just talk for a little while. Let's build back community because love forgives. Love is not interested in seeing his brother and sister groveling trying to get back in your good graces. Now that you have the upper hand, you don't want to misuse it when you love them. You want to get back on one accord as fast as you can. Because that's love. And that's doing it as an action word. Now, our text goes on to say, but rejoices in the truth. It's the idea of wanting to see the truth flower, wanting the truth to grow and to attach and to be spread more and more. That's love. Because when you love like that. You want everybody to know the truth and not live a lie. Knowing that the lie gets you a one-way ticket to hell when the truth can get you a one-way ticket to heaven. Which ticket would you choose? Would you choose yourself the ticket to hell? I think not. So you want the truth to flower. You want it to get out. You don't want to just hold it to yourself. I've seen another phenomenon within the church membership. You keep hearing me say church membership. Not necessarily saying followers of Christ. Because just because a person has church membership does not mean that they are a follower of Jesus Christ. So this phenomenon is where I hear teachers say, I, I don't want to teach them too much so that they get too smart. That's not love. That teacher, preacher, or pastor, and I've heard this for myself, says they love the people, but that's not love because they are putting a wedge between the people and God. Because the way we get closer to the Lord is knowing more about his word. Because it's in his word we find the expression of the mind of God. But keeping the truth and not wanting to flower is not love. No matter how you twist it or turn it. 
You're not loving the people, you're being selfish. You yourself as a teacher may be weak in an area and you don't want to be found out. Because it's all about self, which is not love. So when we teach and when we explain the truth to others, we want them to get as much of it as they can. Because the more they know about the Lord, the closer they can become with him. I want to know the Lord, Paul said. But he learned about the Lord in his word. Amen? In our text, we see that it says that verse 7 bears all things. It's the idea of putting up with anything. In the church of God, in a body of believers, you can see this metaphorically as being a hospital. It's a hospital. There's a lot of sick folk coming to get healed. There is no one in this house, including the preacher, that's perfect. All of us have sin. If we say we have no sin, then we are lying. The truth is not in us. So we're all coming to get well. And since we're all sick, why do we act like our neighbors got to be perfect? Why do we act like somebody else can't hurt us sometimes? Somebody else can't say something crazy that hurts your feelings. We're sick. We have gone to the hospital and seen folks who are sick, and we know how they are when they're not sick, and they're talking out of their mind, saying all kinds of things. But then we say, oh, they're sick. You know, that's all right. We ain't going to bother with that. When they get well, then everything is going to be all right, and they'll be back themselves. You don't hold a grudge against them then. But if we do something crazy against one another here, we then start holding grudges as if we're supposed to all be perfect. When the person holding the grudge is showing that they're not perfect either. So that's why love bears all things. That's why love puts up with all things because we're imperfect. We do things that we do because we want to do it. And some things we do that we don't want to do. We offend people not even trying because we're imperfect people in an imperfect world. But we're coming to the hospital where the doctor is Jesus. We're coming to the place where we can get to where we need to be, that we can get some healing, because by his stripes, we are here. Amen? So let us bear all things. Let us bear one another's burdens. Let me mess up sometime, which you hurt your feelings. Not because I wanted to, or maybe I did still. I'm, I'm weak. I'm a sinner saved by grace. And I got to let y'all do the same thing. Why? Because I love you. Sometimes you're going to say something that you, you mean with all your heart. That you mean for the good of somebody else, but they're going to be hurt by it. And they may retaliate against what you said, but you got to bear all things. Because you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. That word that you said with them may take root and tomorrow they come and say, you know, you were right. I appreciate you doing that. I didn't like it when you said it. And I really wanted to knock you down when you did. But after I slept on it, 
You know, that really makes a difference in my life. And I thank you. Because love is not easy. If love was easy, Jesus wouldn't have died. But in order to love us with the love of God, he had to go to the cross. So did not Jesus tell us to bear our cross daily? Part of bearing that cross is bearing one another's burden in love. Seeing who we are in our frailties and coming alongside one another, trying to help one another get to the promised land, trying to help one another get better, trying to help one another be carved into the image of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Now look at our text. It now says that love believes all things. What that means is that trust God always. See, a lot of times that's when we get messed up. Is we stop trusting God and start trusting ourselves. And we start trying to fix situations or determine what the, the, the uh, recompense should be, what the retaliation should be for some issue or some situation. But the Bible says when you love, you trust God. You let the vengeance be the Lord's. If there's any vengeance that need to be repaid. Sometimes when we think vengeance needs to be executed, there needs to be no vengeance at all. But that's what happens when we're not trusting the Lord. That's what happens when we're not trusting the Lord always, believing all things. These are simple statements, but they're not easy. In a fallen world with sin on every hand, in our mortal bodies having this war where the spirit is against the flesh. But I'm telling you that we are overcomers in the Lord. If we fill our temple with the Holy Spirit, we can do things exceedingly abundantly above anything we could ever ask or think. But it's got to start with love. Love is an action word. Paul says, I show you a more excellent way. It's an evangelism issue. If you want more people to come to Christ, those who know Christ got to love one another. So we look at this text and we see that it endures all things. That's the idea of never looking back, but keeps going to the end. In this Christian walk, it gets hard sometimes. Sometimes things happen that are so disappointing and discomforting that we're ready to throw in the towel. We're ready to close our Bibles, put up our hymnals, lay down our offering envelopes, put down our announcements and our programs, and step right out the door. Never to come back because we're not enduring all things. But this word says, even then, don't you forget the prize. Don't you forget why you are here. Even though you're going through and folk is acting strange and church folks is complaining and all this kind of stuff, talking about you, scandalizing your name. You got to endure. 
Because it's not about what they're doing now, but what Jesus has already done. We're looking for a promised land that some of these may not enter in. So you letting somebody who may not even be there when you get there cause you to stumble and miss your own blessing. We got to endure all things. Don't look back to where it used to be. You know, before I started going to that church, I was all right. You know, I didn't have to deal with them old scandalous folk. Hey, I watched TV. I went to the game. You know, I ate where I wanted to eat, and I went home, and everything was just fine. Me and mine, and that's all I need. But when I went down to that church, they looked at me funny, said my dress was too short, said my skirt was too tight. They talked about how I dressed as a man, said I didn't wear a tie and I didn't wear a suit, and they just getting on my nerves. I'm looking back to where I was before then. Don't look back. Because when you gave your life to the Lord, you didn't promise them nothing. You promised Jesus something. There ain't one of them who talk about you or scandalize your name that's got a heaven or a hell to put you in. So knowing this, keep your focus on the prize of the high calling of God in Jesus Christ. Because it's all about Jesus. So along the way, you can look at your brother and sister who does that and say, oh, they're a fallen creature just like me. I'm going to pray for them, and I'm going to do what I can to help them along the way, but you're not going to stop me from getting my prize. You're not going to stop me from getting to my Jesus. You're not going to stop me from knowing more about my Christ because I'm pressing on. I'm enduring all things, and I ain't looking back no more. The Bible gives us a story of a woman who looked back. Oh, Lot's wife looked back at Sodom and Gomorrah. And when she looked, that she was turned into a pillar of salt. You don't want your life to be immobilized by looking back. You don't want to be immobilized that you're not usable by the Lord because you have decided, I am through with that church and I'm through with this. I'm going back to my old ways. If any man be in Christ, he is a what? New creature. Old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. Even if you want to go back to where you used to be, there's no back for you. All you've done is a new creature has went back to an environment that you got no business in in the first place. But you got to endure all things. Don't give up on the Lord because he didn't give up on you. The greatest endurance racer of them all the name is Jesus. The Bible says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, that for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Oh, when we leave that text just where it is, it doesn't have such a great impact. But if you remember the story, that one night he was in the garden of Gethsemane and he was praying so intently that his sweat was like drops of blood. He understood the situation or event that was to come in his life. And he said, Father, if there's any other way, would you pass this cup from me? 
But because he loved you so much, he endured all things. Because the next words out of his mouth was, but not my will, but thy will be done. And then later that same night, that old devil, Judas Iscariot, came and betrayed him with a kiss. The Roman soldiers came and arrested him. The Jews were there and scoffing. They took him through six kangaroo courts and they whipped him all night long, ripping his flesh away for you and for me. He could have said, you know what? These folks don't even love me. I mean, look at the Jews right here. Look at Israel. They are right here persecuting me. I'm getting my flesh torn off for those who don't even love me. They don't even care about me. They actually hate me, but he endured all things. He endured the scoffing and the hatred from his own people who he came to die from. And none of us are going to the cross for anybody else. So can we not endure the all things in our lives? So after those six kangaroo courts, they marched him down the Via Della Rosa. They took him outside to a place called Gargoth's Hill, which is the hill of the skull. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now that's love. That's love to be whipped all night long, blood streaming down, so we carrying a cross that somebody else had to carry for him. But when he got out there to go Gotha's hill, he could have said, you know what, forget this. That's enough is enough. He could have called down a legion of angels, but he didn't because he loved us. Now that's love. Love didn't say a mumbling word, but love said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So if Jesus could do all that for us, surely we can forgive our brothers and sisters. There's none of our brothers and sisters taking us out to God of the hill and putting nails in our hands and putting nails in our feet. But Jesus took that gladly because the joy was that each and every one of us who would name his name would not end up in a burning hell, but be in the presence of the Lord where there is fullness of joy and at his right hand is pleasure forevermore. But that story goes on to let us know that he stayed on that cross. He didn't just get down right quick, but he stayed there and suffered from the third to the ninth hour. And he could have said, well, that's enough. I'm going to get off, heal myself, bring the angels down and minister me, and then keep on walking. But he didn't stop there. He ultimately died. He died for you and me. So if Jesus Christ could die for us, those who didn't love him, surely we ought to be able to die daily to one another. We ought to be able to die to ourselves enough to be a blessing to somebody else. Even when they have done wrong toward us, we can still do right toward them. And so they put him in that burial, in that, in that tomb. And he stayed in that tomb all night Friday night. He stayed in that tomb all day Saturday. He stayed in that tomb all night Saturday night. He could have said, you know what? This is crazy. I'm in this cold, dark tomb. I can just resurrect myself, come back, and move on. But he didn't because he what? Loved us. The Bible says he went down to in a prison where a lot of people was in a holding place and he preached the revival. He could have said, I'll leave y'all there. 
Y'all didn't love me then, so why should I even worry about you now? But he did it because he loved me. So after that three-day layover, on that third day morning, he got up with all power in his hand. His father raised him from the dead. And he showed himself to over 500 apostles. And he stayed for a 40-day layover. He could have got up from the grave and just said, Father, I'm coming on home right now. But he didn't. He stayed here a little while longer to encourage the leaders at Jerusalem, to encourage the saints, to encourage the church to know that he lives, to go get Peter, the one who denied him, the one who said that he didn't know him, the one who cursed before the cock crowed. He said, and go get Peter. I don't know in here has anybody denied you that you dying for. So if he can forgive Peter, surely we can forgive one another. So he did all this encouragement. He did all this for them so that the church would be complete. And only after that walking with those disciples, including Peter, the one who denied him, he was encouraging them and teaching them and loving on them. On that 40th day, he stepped out of the cloud and went back to glory. And now sits at the right hand of the Father. But that's not the end of the story. He's not just sitting there looking around for entertainment, seeing what we're doing. But because he loves us, he's interceding for you and he's interceding for me. When we do wrong, when we should have done right, the Lord looks at the Father and said, but I died for him. Lord, forgive him because he loves you just that much. When you're living a life that looks like you don't care nothing about him at all, he's still praying for you. He's still calling on the master for you. He's still looking at the father for you because that's love. He's enduring what? All things. Even now. So if we're going to be the believers we're to be and exude and express the things of God, we got to endure all things too. Because the world will know we are his disciples by the love that we show for one another. We can run around here saying we are saved, sanctified, and full of the Holy Spirit, and that we love God, but if we hate our brother, we are a liar. Because we got to love our brother first in order to show that we love God. So right now, the doors of the church are open. If there's anyone here who hearing these words and hearing about this Jesus has not made a commitment to let the Lord forgive them of your sins and then to come and live in you. Right now is the time. Right now is the time that you can get your business fixed. Because these words today are simple but not easy. But when you get the Christ in you, you got the power to do these things because Christ is the believer's life. Not somebody walking beside it, but is our life. And that which needs to be done will be done by him in you. There's a joy and there's a peace that can only come from him. But right now is the day of salvation. You can come today. Don't you wait another minute, another hour? Another second. Don't wait. Give your life to him today. He's already paid the price. Way back on Calvary. 
that you don't have to pay it anymore. It doesn't make sense to try to keep living a life without God, stumbling and bumbling through life, being a ship without a rudder, when you can have Jesus as your God. Let him be the captain of your ship. He knows how to get you through troubled waters. You can come today. You can come by baptism. Not knowing the Lord, you can come and be baptized. If you got Christian experience but does not have a church home where you can express the love for one another, you can come today. You can come by letter or experience to be part of a family of God that's striving to be God's disciple. Striving to love one another. And you can join in and love today. It's just that simple. You can ask the Lord to clean you up. And set you on your way. There is room. At the cross. For.
who comes by Christian experience.
chewed up and everything. And I see times I've tried to get out of bed and I fall on the on my face almost, okay? But I see this thing, I they gone on far off the toilet stool. And then about 35 years later, I had a seizure again. And I was in my office. And this time, my tongue wasn't chewed up. And when he was putting me in the 